studying our way through the book of Philippians, we come this morning to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. And before we uh, read God's word this morning, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we uh, come to your word this morning, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive the deep truths of your word. Lord, cultivate the soil of our hearts that it may fall on good soil and that it may bear fruit of change and of transformation that would be for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, we offer ourselves to you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. The Apostle Paul says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Be seated. In his uh, famous poem, called The Road Not Taken, Robert Frost writes about two roads that diverged in a yellow wood. And he goes on in that poem to say how he, uh, at the end, uh, as he debated and, and pondered over which road to take, he took the road less traveled by. And like Robert Frost, the Apostle Paul paints a picture of two roads in our text this morning, and everyone in this world is on one road or the other. One road is the way of the kingdom of the world, and the other road is the way of the kingdom of heaven. And in Paul's language, uh, those who walk the first road are enemies of the cross, and those who walk the, the second road are citizens of heaven. And so as we consider these, these two roads, it's my, my hope and my prayer that we uh, will find renewed hope as we walk the road less traveled by. So I want us to consider first the road taken by those that Paul calls the enemies of the cross. Paul says in verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, those who live as enemies of the cross are those who belong to the kingdom of the world. They, they reject Christ and his kingdom. They, they want nothing to do with a, with a self-denying way of the cross, and they want everything to do with the self-gratifying ways of the world. They remind me of the, 
the dwarves in uh, the book The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, Lewis, where they they live for themselves and they they can't see any of the, the blessings or the delights or the rewards of living for Christ. And so they want nothing to do with that way. And they, they are at odds with the kingdom of heaven because they are so tied to the things of the earth. Listen again to how Paul describes them in these verses. He says in verse 19, their God is their stomach. And that word stomach is used uh, figuratively to represent all kinds of earthly appetites. In some cases, it's used uh, to refer literally to the, the stomach in which food is digested. Other times, it's referred to use, uh, re- referred to uh, used to refer to the womb in which babies are conceived. So it used really uh, figuratively to re- represent all kinds of earthly appetites. The enemies of the cross indulge in the appetites of the flesh. They gorge themselves on earthly desires. And Paul goes on to say that their glory is in their shame. This means that, that they glory in those things that they should be ashamed of, that, that their values are reversed, so that they call good what, what God declares to be evil, and they, they call evil what God declares to be good. And of course, we, we see examples of this, don't we, all, all around us in our world today where, where people and, and culture and, and different uh, uh, institutions and different uh, the people celebrate those things that God declares to be evil and they scorn those things that God declares to be good. I think one of the more jolting examples of this in our world today is a movement that began uh, five or six years ago now that's called Shout Your Abortion. And the whole point of the movement is to celebrate abortion as something good and positive and normal. And they even have a website where you can buy t-shirts and baby onesies that are emblazoned with slogans celebrating abortion. This is what enemies of the cross do. Their glory is in their shame. Or as one translation puts it, they, they brag about shameful things. Paul sums it up. At the end of verse 19, when he says that their mind is set on earthly things. And this is really sort of the, the bottom line for those who walk the road of the worldly kingdom. They are, they are consumed with earthly desires. Their hearts are set on things below. In their kingdom, the self reigns supreme. And this world is really all there is. And so you just indulge the appetites. You, you live for the present. You exalt self. You, you glory in human achievement and progress. And that's really all that there is. And so in their kingdom, earthly honor is everything. And earthly failure is devastating. This is the road of the kingdom of the world. And those who walk it are enemies of the cross. And Paul gives a rather blunt assessment of where this road leads. He says their destiny is destruction. And this really is an echo of the language of the psalmist in Psalm 1, where the psalmist says that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked ends in destruction. Those who live for this life alone lose everything. They forfeit the glories of heaven that could have been theirs. Uh, The psalmist says in Psalm 73 that they are like a dream when one awakes. You know that feeling? You've been in a deep sleep and you've been dreaming and then you wake up and just sort of instantly it all just kind of vanishes away. What, What seems so substantive and so real and so concrete and so vivid in your dream, you wake up and just like that, it's 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 gone. That's what the psalmist says. It's like with the wicked, 
They're like a dream when one awakes. And when you arise, O Lord, you despise them as fantasies. So that all that they they chased and accumulated and celebrated in this life will, will vanish in an instant, will slip through their fingers like a mist. This is what is in store for those who walk the road of the kingdom of the world and who live as enemies of the cross. But then in sharp contrast to this, Paul goes on to describe the road <clears throat> taken by those he call, who live as citizens of heaven. So after painting a picture of sort of the, <clears throat> the hopeless state of those who live as enemies of the cross, he goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we're, not, we're not like that. We're, we're set apart from that. We're different from that. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we've already seen uh, from earlier studies of, of Philippians how important that theme of, of citizenship was for Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Because remember, just to refresh your memories, uh, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, which meant that the, the Philippians had Roman citizenship. And so even though uh, the city was in Macedonia, hundreds of miles away from Rome, uh, so if you look on the map, the, the red star in the upper center is Philippi, the green star in the upper left is Rome, so hundreds of miles away from the city of Rome, and yet they were a Roman colony, and they had Roman citizenship, and so it was like sort of this, this miniature Rome in that corner of the world. And the people of Philippi took great pride in their status as Roman citizens, and so they dressed like Romans, and they talked like Romans, and they exemplified the life and the culture of Rome. Everything about them reflected Rome. You'd, you'd walk into Philippi, and it was like walking into a little, middle, little model of Rome, and everybody there acted like Romans. The city of Philippi was a little outpost of Rome in that distant land of Macedonia. And Paul says, that's what it's like for us as Christians, that the church is like a little outpost of heaven on earth. And so we live in this world, but we are to reflect the values and the ideals of the kingdom of heaven in the way we live, because this is where our true citizenship lies. And if it is true that our citizenship is indeed in heaven, then this carries with it some significant implications. And I would like us to just... Uh, in the rest of our time this morning, consider uh, four of these implications. The first is this. If our citizenship is in heaven, then this world as we know it is not our true home. As Peter said in his letter, uh, we are foreigners and exiles here. And so as citizens of heaven, we, we shouldn't feel at home in this world. We're, we're like travelers passing through on our way to our homeland. And there will be something within us then that, that longs for home. There will be sort of a, a homesickness about us. I love the way Charles Spurgeon uh, described it when he said that we are like stranded sailors on a desolate island. And we've saved a few things from the, the wreck and we've, we've built ourselves an old log hut. But we, so we have a few of these sort of comforts around us. But for all that, he says, we long for home. And every morning, he says, we look out to sea, waiting in expectation for a ship to arrive. And every night, if that ship doesn't arrive during the day, we light a fire so that if a ship should come at night, it would see the blaze and it would bring us home. And he says, we're thankful for our old log hut, but we hold it with loose hands, longing for the better things in a better land. And this is really, of course, what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said the heroes of faith 
We're foreigners and strangers on earth longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And that's what it's like to be citizens of heaven. That we know that this present world is not our true home. And so we're always longing, always anticipating, always looking ahead to the better country. And again, I think C.S. Lewis captures this well in his book, The Last Battle, when the kids and the animals all go from the shadow lands of life in this world to the glorious land of life beyond, the, the, the real Narnia, the true Narnia, it's like going home only more beautiful than any of them could ever have imagined. And it was Jewel, the unicorn, who put into words what they were all feeling, and, and he stamped his hoof, and he said, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. There is a country that we've been looking for all our lives. There is a homeland more beautiful than, than we could ever imagine. And as citizens of heaven, we we then hold the things of earth loosely. We're foreigners here longing for the better country. And so a question for, for us this morning is, do we hold the things of earth loosely as those who are truly longing for the better country? The second implication is this. If our citizenship is in heaven then we should stand out from those who belong to the kingdom of the world. Uh, Paul says that we should shine like stars in the midst of a dark and depraved world. We should be children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation among whom you shine like stars in the sky. It should be evident that we don't belong in the kingdom of the world. As the Philippians looked and lived like Romans, you could walk into Philippi and say, hey, there's something different about their, these look like little Romans in the midst of Macedonia. In the same way, we should look and live like Christians. So that when people run into us, when they have conversations with us, when they, when they encounter us, when they see us, they should see something different about us. Spurgeon said it should be as easy to tell a Christian from a worldling as it is to tell a soaring seraph from a crawling worm. The problem, of course, for many of us is that we forget who we are. We forget that we are foreigners and, and strangers here, and so we grow comfortable in our exile. The seductions of the kingdom of the world are many, and we begin to compromise. We, we indulge a little here. We accommodate to some of the worldliness over there, and pretty soon we're just not that homesick anymore. We stop looking for the city to come, as the writer of Hebrews says, and we become rather content in Babylon. And so we settle for the lesser desires of the things of earth, and we forsake the spring of living water, as the prophet Jeremiah said, for broken cisterns that hold no water. And with those broken cisterns, we keep chasing for more, and they keep running out of water, so we keep thirsting for more and keep going after more and more of these broken cisterns, but none of them ever truly satisfy. And pretty soon we are Christians by name, but there's nothing really different about us. And if a stranger would come upon us and a person of the world, they would see nothing really all that different about us at all. We need to remember who we are that we have been purchased for God with blood more costly than gold, that we have become citizens of heaven. And now everything that fills our deepest desires is in that better country. And so why would we, as the prophet Isaiah said, why would we spend our money on what is not bread and our labor on what does not satisfy? 
as citizens of heaven, we should stand out from those who belong to the kingdom of the world. The third implication is this. If our citizenship is in heaven, then we need to have a robust vision of living under the lordship of Christ. Paul says in verse 20 that as citizens of heaven, we eagerly await a savior from there. And that savior is, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've talked about this before, but, but uh, more so than in any of his other letters, Paul links these two titles to Jesus, Lord and Savior. Lord Kyrios in Greek, Savior Soter in Greek. And the reason he does that is because, uh, again, Philippi being a Roman colony, they were deeply entrenched in emperor worship. And so they embraced the Roman emperor Caesar as, and the two main titles that were attached to the, uh, the Roman emperor at that time were Soter, Savior, and Kyrios, Lord. And so to combat that philosophy and that mindset, Paul again and again throughout his letter to the Philippians will attach those titles to to Jesus and say, no, it is Christ who is Lord and it is Christ who is Savior. And so Paul says that that is who we await from heaven, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this mention of Christ as Lord again brings us back to Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says that he was given, that, Christ, that Jesus was given that name Lord as the name that is above every other name, a name that brings together the divine names Yahweh and Adonai, a name that indicates absolute and total and complete sovereignty, sovereign rule over all created things. There is no higher name that you can possibly give than the title Lord. And now Paul goes on to say here in verse 21 that, that this, uh, this Lord Jesus Christ, this Lord and Savior, has the power to bring everything under his control. That's what, that's, that's what the title Lord does for you. It gives you that power to bring everything under your control. And so every aspect and every sphere of public life, including art and commerce and education and politics, is under the Lordship of Christ. As citizens of heaven, we serve a king who rules over all realms of our broken world, and therefore we are to strive to bring every sphere of existence into harmony with his lordship. And this is why we pray for our nations and for our church and for our nation's leaders. This is why we as elders have invited you to join us in a weekly prayer, because this is one way that we can bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is why we concern ourselves with art and music and politics and racism and the environment. We strive to be a gospel influence in all these things because we we have a Savior who is bringing everything, everything under his control. The Lordship of Christ extends to all spheres of life, and so we need to have a robust vision of living under his Lordship. The fourth implication is this. If our citizenship is in heaven, then we can live with a confident expectation of a glorious life beyond the grave. Paul says that we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now what Paul is saying here is that our hope then is not some sort of generic hope of being in a better place after we die, as so many people who, who, who uh, don't have the same hope in Christ that we do. That's the, the language that you, they use, sort of the, these, these sort of vague, nebulous kinds of 
uh, empty expressions, being in a better place. It's not the bland hope of this of a sort of a bodiless existence in some nebulous place we call heaven. It is the hope of something concrete and visible, something earthy and real. It is the glorious hope of being raised to new life with new bodies that never diminish or die, lived in the presence of God on an earth where everything has been made new. When I was... Uh, this past week, I was traveling from North Dakota, where I was hunting, to Minnesota, where I had to do a funeral for Lori's great aunt, who died. Um, in fact, she would have been 100 today. She was 99. And so I, I was traveling on the way back from hunting to Minnesota to do that funeral, and it was just the most glorious drive. I still don't know how we were on that road, because it wasn't the way that we came, and, uh, but it was just this most beautiful, glorious drive on this winding road through hills and lakes and streams. And the, 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 the fall colors were just absolutely brilliant with this red and orange and gold. And there were swans on the ponds and there were ducks and geese. It was just, it was incredible. And it was a vivid reminder to me that there are so many, there are so many beautiful things on this earth. Again, a day like today, to go up to High Cliff State Park, go up to Door County, or just, or just drive around and take in the, the beauties of this earth that God has made. But as beautiful as it is, Scripture invites us to imagine a world where all of the good things of this earth are polished to perfection, a world in which the rainbows are more brilliant and the fruit has more flavor, the lakes are clearer, the, the rivers run wilder, the friendships run deeper, and the mountains are even more majestic. And it invites us to imagine a world where all of the, the shadows of pain in this, in this earth are gone, the sorrows of loneliness, the devastation of disease, the, the sting of death. This is the hope that we have, the hope of a glorious life beyond the grave in the presence of our glorious king. As C.S. Lewis once said, there are better things ahead than any we leave behind. In 1899, the, uh, the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody died. And he had been uh, declining for some time, and his family had been taking, terms, had been taking turns uh, spending time with him, being with him in, in his presence as he was dying. And on the morning of his death, they heard Moody exclaim, Earth is receding, heaven is opening, God is calling. And as he slipped closer to death, he said, is this death? This is, there, there's no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious, he said. And when his daughter could tell that he was getting closer and closer to death, she began to pray for his recovery. And he said to her, no, my dear, don't pray for that. For God is calling. This is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to this day all my life. And so he went with joy to be with his Lord. And don't you want to die like that? If, if our citizenship is in heaven, then we can live with a confident expectation of a glorious life beyond the grave. Now, as we conclude this morning, there's one lingering question that still remains, and that is, well, how do we, how do we put these words of Paul into practice? How do we live as citizens of heaven? And this really seems to be Paul's main concern in this portion of his letter, that our, our citizenship in heaven is the, the ground or the basis for how we should live. 
and how we should live is identified in verse 17, where Paul says, join together in following my example and keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Well, we, that statement in itself begs the question, well, what is Paul's example? And for that answer, we have to go back a couple of verses because Paul has just told us what his example is. We see it in verse 10 where Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, anything that can allow me to know Christ more fully and completely. And then again in verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's example is to press on toward the goal of knowing Christ fully and completely. This is how we are to live as citizens of heaven. Our lives are dominated by the desire to know Christ and to become more like him. So everything that that means anything is, is hidden in Christ and in the better country where he resides. And so we toss aside our, our broken cisterns and we spend ourselves drinking from the well of living water. We thirst for Christ. We find our satisfaction in Christ. We want nothing but to know him more and become more like him. And as Paul says, we do this with a confident expectation that our Savior is coming, that he will return. And when he comes, we will get what we most, most desire, and that is that we will know him fully, even as we are fully known. One of the uh, Puritan prayers captures well, I think, what Paul was driving at in these verses, and so I'd like to conclude with that prayer this morning. This is the prayer of those who wish to live as citizens of heaven. Let no strong affection wantonly dally with the world. May I live high above a love of things temporal, sanctified, cleansed, unblemished, hallowed by grace. Thy love, my fullness, thy glory, my joy. Thy precepts, my pathway. Thy cross, my resting place. May that be our prayer. And may we so live as citizens of heaven to the glory of God. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response and preparation for communion this morning, Lord, may we pray that prayer. May it be our heart's desire, O oh Lord, to live as citizens of heaven. And to know, O oh Lord, our identity, our true identity as those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. O oh Lord, will you breathe that identity into us again this morning as we come before your throne in silent prayer.
Oh Lord, may we have within us no strong affection that wantonly dallies with the world. May we live high above a love of things temporal as we long for our true home, as we long for the better country. May we be sanctified, cleansed, unblemished, and hallowed by grace. May we live, O Lord, as citizens of heaven in which your love is our fullness, your glory is our joy, your precepts are our pathway, and your cross is our resting place. O Lord, lead us to the resting place of the cross as we come to communion this morning. Call us, O Lord, if we have wandered, if we have dallied with the ways of the world. Call us back to you. And give us a renewed hope and a renewed vision of living this morning as citizens of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.